This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord heard a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of God. Now let's pray together. Uh, Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have said that your word is living and active, sharper than any sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And you have made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So please enable me today to speak your word faithfully from your word and please cause it to do what you have promised it will. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Friends, just a bit of background uh, for these talks. So uh, just to rehearse what we've done so far, remember that uh, we started in Exodus. That's the theological grounding for what we're doing, uh, the story and the statement about God. Uh, then in this last talk, I wanted to, you to look at a positive example of uh, responding to God's kesed. Uh, here, and uh, two books, uh, both narrative books, uh, one uh, narrative, uh, one prophetic narrative. Uh, we've looked at uh, Ruth, and that's given us, in one sense, a story of an interaction over this whole thing. And now in Jonah, we're going to get another story, which is also a prophetic book about all of this. Okay, so, uh, um, and one will give the positive side of responding to God's kesed, and the other will give how you might get it wrong. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do. Then in the next, the talks after this, we'll begin to enter into the New Testament. So that's just so you know where we're going. Um, just to summarise, in our first talk we were introduced uh, to the God of the Old Testament word that, uh, to God and the Old Testament word that describes the core of God's being. The God of Israel is uh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in kesed. That disposition lies at the core of his being. That leads to what the New Testament calls grace. In fact, I think it could be argued that the Old Testament equivalent of grace, that what kesed is the Old Testament equivalent of grace, mercy and love all rolled into one word. Okay, grace, mercy and love all rolled into one word. Uh, in our second talk, we saw a great example or great examples of kesed being practiced 
by the family line of David and therefore the family line of Jesus. In some ways we can say that the origins of the family line of Jesus are tied up with people reflecting Kesed in their attitudes and their lives. Okay, so they're, they're working it out in their lives. We, we learnt that the godly reflect God's grace by being gracious. They reflect Kesed by showing Kesed. But in this talk, we're going to learn something different about it. You see, Kesed is mentioned twice in the book of Jonah. Both instances are critical. So let's get started and let's have a look at Jonah chapter 1. Uh, Jonah's story began that fateful day when the word of the Lord came to him. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Uh, in other words, God spoke to him. And God called him for a task. And Jonah heard God speak and he knew what God wanted, but he couldn't handle God's word or God's will. Um, and so Jonah fled. Uh, Jonah, in my view, uh, if you were to think about prophets in the Old Testament, who's the sort of archetypal prophet? He's, uh, in many senses, Moses. Right? So Moses has a command from God. He sees a burning bush. God says, go and rescue my people Israel. He says, I've got these objections to this. And God says, too bad, go and do it. After working through about a number of them. In the end, he goes. Jeremiah is exactly like Moses. Uh, Jeremiah has the same sort of experience. God says, I want you to go and do something. He says, I don't want to do it. God says, you'll do it anyway. He says, okay, I'll go. Right, so there's the archetype. What's the antitype? The antitype is this man here. <laughs> He's what you ought not to do. He doesn't even argue. He just turns and runs. <laughs> he runs away from the presence of the Lord. He disobeys God. He's the antitype. Okay? And by doing so, he invokes God's anger and he puts others at risk. As a result of his disobedience, the God of all um, before the God of all the earth, there are innocent sailors who are at risk of losing their lives. But as we saw, that doesn't stop Jonah. He fails to respond. You'll notice he is asleep, not praying, while the rest of the boat is praying. In Jonah chapter one, he doesn't turn back. He just keeps going. He refuses to give up his right to choose his own way, which he deems is better than God's way. He just soldiers on. And therefore, he leaves the sailors with only one choice. Throw him overboard. Reluctantly, they do it. They throw him into the sea and God acts again. He provides this great fish to swallow Jonah. Then... Uh, the, the sailors acknowledge the greatness of Jonah's God by using his name, the Lord, and asking for his help and greatly fearing him and obeying him and offering sacrifices to him and making vows to him. The centre of chapter 1 of Jonah is that Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Who are the only people that actually fear the God? God the Lord, the, the God of heaven and earth. Sailors, right? <laughs> if Jonah did, what would he be doing? Going to Nineveh. He doesn't. He just runs away. Okay? That brings us to chapter 2. Chapter 2 takes us into Jonah's mind. It expresses what he thought and he felt while he was in the belly of the fish. And let's have a look at it. So chapter 2. First of all, he records the feeling of sinking and drowning. I look at verses 3, 5 and 6. He says, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the root, and then verse 6, To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit. Now, I want you to notice uh, the impact of what Jonah says here. Ask yourself, who does Jonah regard as being responsible for him being in the situation he's in? Who cast him into the sea? Was it the sailors or was it God? Well, verse 3 makes that very clear, doesn't it? God did. 
The sailors were merely agents of God's anger, just as the fish is merely an agent of God's rescue. Now let's check out Jonah's feelings, verse 4. Chapter 1 told us that he wanted to flee from God's presence. But verse 4 tells us the other side of the story. Look at Jonah 2.4. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. In other words, can you see what Jonah is doing? He's making it clear that although he wanted to fear from God's presence, he actually cannot bear the thought of what this might really be like. I wonder if you've ever been in that situation. I have. I thought there's only one good place to be, and that is in God's presence. But I felt the difficulty of being there and would like to be free, but cannot be. Because, uh, and I think that's not an uncommon experience uh, amongst Christians. Um, Jonah is making this clear. There are two sides to his feelings. Now I want you to look at verse 7. Jonah says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. That, I think, is a crucial verse in Jonah's experience. In the Hebrew language, To remember something doesn't just mean to bring it back into your memory. Okay, that's often what it means for us. To remember something is to bring it back into our memory. No, uh, remembering is like uh, what you do when you remember that you don't have your keys to the car with you and you think, I'm not going to be able to drive the car unless I go get the keys. And so you do something in response. Does that make sense? That's very different to just forgetting something. It springs into an action. And that's what God's remembering is about, and that's what remembering about God is about in the Old Testament. When you remember, you say, I know my security and my health and so on is with God, and so I want to remember him, and I'll remember by calling out to him. So he remembers God and he acts. He calls upon God And his prayer comes into the very presence of God. And what about God? What does God do with this recalcitrant prophet? Does he keep on judging him? Does he keep on being angry with him? Well, Jonah chapter 2 verse 2 tells us. He answers Jonah's prayer for deliverance. And listen to Jonah. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now take a look at verse 9. It tells us why God answers. He answers because he's the God who is into deliverance and rescue. He is the God of deliverance. Salvation belongs to him. So there's the story. That's just in very brief outline, two chapters. Um, Now what I'd like to do is return to the word that we met in Exodus 34. Chesed. And I know now you remember what it means. It means God's... My congregation now, I just have to say the word back in uh, Doncaster, which I came from before I came to Singapore, in Melbourne. I just had to say the word Chesed and they knew and understood. I'm hoping at the end of this time together, you too will be in that position. The only trouble is no other preacher will do it for you. Uh, but what does it mean? It, re- it means God's spontaneous, unexpected, undeserved, surprising love and grace. Okay? It is what God does when you least expect him to. It's what God does when you've been like Jonah and you suddenly remember him. All of a sudden he does the unexpected and he gives you his spontaneous kindness. Now the word cassette is actually used in verse 8. Have a look at it. Let's read it. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs or the steadfast love that could be theirs. The word grace here, or steadfast love, depending on which version you might be reading, is that exact word cursed. Can you see what Jonah is saying? He's in the belly of the fish. He's reflecting on his own experience. He's saying that there is a temptation for people in relation to God and the temptation is that when things get hard, they desert the worship of the true God and run after other gods or no gods at all. 
What Jonah is saying is that if you do this, you will deserve something. What is it? You'll desert your only hope. For what is your only hope in life? Our only hope is a God who treats us better than we deserve. Isn't that true? Our only hope is a God who treats us better than we deserve. Who is surprisingly, spontaneously gracious and kind. That is what lies under God's rescue of Jonah. In my mind, that is why he remembers God even though he doesn't like God's command. Because he knows that even though God gives commands he doesn't like, underneath it all, God is gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why he longs to be in his presence, because that's what God is like. He knows God is Kassid. And he knows that to forsake that, if you, if you let that go in life, if you say, no, I've had enough of that, then you've got nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. If God is not gracious, and if you say, I want to cut, or if God is gracious, and you say, I want to cut myself loose from that God, there is no other place to go for grace. For at the core of his being, God is gracious, kind, merciful and loving. Now, I wonder if you notice the similarities between chapter 1 and chapter 2. The experience of Jonah is very similar to the experience of the sailors in chapter 1. Both face a crisis from the sea. Both cry out to God and acknowledge his control over the world. Both are saved. Both offer praise and sacrifice. So what is our author telling us by having these parallels between chapter 1 and chapter 2? Our author is telling us that God's kesed is not discerning. It is for all who want to call upon it. God saves all who call upon him, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what I think verse 9 is about. No matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, if you forsake the Lord, you forsake the kesed that might be yours. Salvation belongs to the Lord because he is kesed, a rescuer. Salvation belongs to him. Undergirding his desire to save and rescue is this fundamental disposition in his character towards surprising, spontaneous, unearned grace and kindness. And the New Testament agrees with the Old Testament. Grace is at the very core of God's existence. His nature is to have mercy, to be generous, spontaneous, surprising in his generosity. And the New Testament tells us of the one event where that nature is seen most clearly. The New Testament tells us that God sent his son into the world to die, the just for the unjust. How gracious is that? God acted beyond obligation. There's no obligation in God in one sense, except in his own being, to be like that. There's no legal obligation for him to act like that. He acts and he does kesed. Now I want you to keep your finger or marker or whatever, whatever you do on a digital device where it is, and go to Romans 5, 6 to 8. So look up in your Bibles, Romans 5, 6 to 8. And keep that in mind. And let's read it. Paul says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man. That is, it's very rare that someone will find a righteous man and say, yeah, I'll die for him. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. You know, maybe, maybe you might dare to do that. But who would die for outsiders, sinners? But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. How extraordinary is that? Now, who's going to do that? Only God. And God's word is clear, isn't it? God's view is that we were like Jonah, disobedient to him, but God did what he did with the mariners and with Jonah. He acted in spontaneous, unexpected, unobligated love by sending his son. 
Later on, the very same author, Paul, will make a similar point that is made in the book of Jonah. I want you to flip over to chapter 10 of Romans now, verses 9 to 13. So Romans 10, 9 to 13. Look at what Paul says. He says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jonah 1 or Jonah 2, whichever you are, if you trust in God and his grace, you will be saved. God and his grace displayed in his son. His generosity is for all, no exceptions. Kesed belongs to him. And therefore deliverance or salvation is for all, no matter who you are. You see, I think Jonah is telling us, keep your eyes open on this face. Because, you know, when you look at, uh, when you look at uh, the law and when you look at the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, you sort of get this feeling, don't you, that yes, you call Israel and then when you give them the law in, in Exodus, you put a boundary around them and say, I've now, I've now called my people and now I've got some walls up around my people. And my walls are the law. That will make them my special people. But did you notice, as the Old Testament goes on, there's always people creeping across the top of the walls. Notice God's put the walls around. There's always people sneaking in. Jethro the father-in-law of Moses, who's a Moabite. He seems to sneak in. He's a believer in Yahweh. His name is even a Yahwistic name. What about Ruth? She seems to sneak in. What about Rahab? She sneaks in as well. And God welcomes such people. He's giving us a sign that his mercy will never just be restricted to his people and even that he has the whole world in mind. That's why the Bible begins with Genesis 1 to 11, not with chapter 12, as many Christians think it begins. It doesn't begin with Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. It begins with Genesis 1, which has the whole world in mind. That's where God is headed. That's why it begins with all creation and ends with all creation. Because that's what God has in mind. Now, before we go on to Jonah 3 and 4, I wonder if I could just make just a few other observations. Please follow my logic. It goes like this. If this really is our God, if this is his nature, his heart will invariably be directed towards salvation. And if we have experienced his salvation if we've been overtaken by his grace, then we too will have our hearts directed toward the salvation of the world, won't we? We too will long for people to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, God's heart expressed in the gospel is the thing that energises evangelism and mission. And if we are God's people, it must be what motivates us. I want you in your Bibles again to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. And I'll read it to you. Follow it with me and see the logic of Paul. He says, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. From now on, we should regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Can you see what Paul's saying? He's saying uh, God was at work. He exercised his grace toward us. He saved us and reconciled himself to us. What impact is that going to have for us? 
Well, he's committed us to the same message of reconciliation. God was, in, was uh, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making an appeal through us. He's talking about his own ministry, but it has implications for us. We implore you on Christ's heart, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But what is it that motivates Paul under, to evangelise the world? He tells you. He says, for Christ's love compels us. And in my view, if you have been won by Christ's love, it will compel you as well. Friends, I wonder if you're aware that those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ have forsaken the cassette that might be theirs. And have you been gripped by God's overwhelming and surprising love in Jesus Christ? And do you know that the world out there is forsaking that love that might be theirs? And does that move you? Has it gripped your hearts? Does the world's lostness and God's overwhelming love compel you? Does it drive you to prayer for those who don't know of that love and grace? And will you let it drive you from here into a lifetime of making that love known in whatever way God requires of you? Will you let it eject you from small ambitions and fill your heart with the ambition of making Christ known wherever he is not known by whatever means you can. Friends, that's the God of Cassette. He has ensured salvation is available for all. We cannot keep this a secret. We cannot but give our lives that others might know. God's Cassette compels us. It drives us to evangelism, to vigorous, energetic, sacrificial mission, to give our money, to go, whatever it is. But that's not all. Follow this logic. And that's where Jonah 3 and 4 come through. Okay, so let's now move to Jonah 3 and 4. The first thing we're told in Jonah chapter 3 is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. But do you notice the little words there? Time number 2. <laughs> A second time. Now, let me tell you, God has been surprisingly merciful he has not cast off his recalcitrant prophet. No, he's called him a second time. Now, if you've read the book of 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you'll notice that some prophets get it wrong sometime and God says, that's it. Not this one. He comes to him a second time. And this second time, Jonah obeys. And he gets up and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He prepares to go to this great city and proclaim the message of God to it. But I want you to notice the change between Jonah 1 and Jonah 3. In Jonah 1, Jonah was told to preach against Nineveh. Flip back and you'll see it. Against Nineveh. Do you notice in Jonah 2 the difference? He's told to preach to Nineveh. Now let me tell you a little bit about Nineveh so you know, get a feel for it. Okay. First, it was obviously a large city. Jonah 4.11 says it had 120,000 people that lived in it. Jonah 3 verse 3 says it was a large city. A visit took three days. That probably means it took three days to observe all the proper ancient protocols and so on, rather than three days to walk from the edge to the centre. Verse 3 says it was also a very important city. A literal translation would be this. It was a great city to God. That's literally what the Hebrew says. It was a great city to God. In other words, what matters about Nineveh is not its size, unlike many of our English translations. What matters is that it is great to God. I think that means important to God. It's a city God is concerned about, is of import to him. And the message that Jonah is to preach is clear. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The impact of the message is also clear. God is the God of all the earth. 
God has seen you, God has judged you, God will destroy you in 40 days. And the response is equally clear in the passage. Look at verse 5. We're told that the Ninevites believe God. In other words, they hear the message, they believe it comes from God, and that it's true. Now look at verse 8. We're told that the king issues a decree that they are all to call urgently on God. Having heard God's word, having believed God, they're now to call out urgently to him. But calling out's not the only action they do, is it? This act of corporate repentance is thorough. I mean, it's very, very thorough. Verse 5 tells us that all of them, from the greatest to the least, begin a fast and mourn. Verse 6 tells us the king himself humbles himself before God. Uh, He takes off his royal robe. He covers himself with sackcloth. He then, you can imagine a king doing this, can't you? Sits in the centre of the city square, perhaps, in ashes, amidst a pile of ashes, mourning at his own sinfulness. I don't think I've ever seen a king or president or whatever do that. But look at verse 8. Not only do they turn to God, but they also turn from sin. They have to turn from their evil ways, turn from violence. It's clear that the Ninevites have truly heard and believed. Their belief is true belief. You can see it in their actions. They've truly understood that they're accountable to God. They've truly understood that he's holy and that they stand under his judgment. They know they've transgressed. They know he will judge. They know the judgment is to be feared. But more than that, they know that their only help is in him. And and there is real belief, real sorrow, real fear, real change. By the way, have a look sometime for the word repentance in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And you'll notice that Paul talks about what real repentance looks like. And it's just like this. It has a godly sorrow attached to it. You know when people repent, there's a godly sorrow attached to it. Now, I want you to imagine the situation in Nineveh. Here they are. They've been going through life as though it were self-contained. I'll use the language the Lord uses of the people of his own day. They were marrying, giving in marriage, having children, rearing children, going about their daily work and generally living life. A living life as we do in Singapore. Just do the things we do. All of a sudden, this man from this small, virtually unknown country slips into their city. Uh, He starts standing up in their marketplaces and he roams about telling them there's a God to whom they are responsible. And they believe. They repent. And they think, we are in trouble. If there's such a God, and if he does punish sin... What hope have we got? And then the king takes leadership and he clutches at a straw. In hope against hope, he utters the words of verse 9. Can you see this? He says, who knows? It's a desperate cry, isn't it? Who knows? He suddenly found out he's guilty of sin and his whole town is, his whole city is. And he says, who knows? It's a desperate cry. If I can just paraphrase what I think is going on. He says, who knows if a God who is just and holy can accept sinners and rebels? Who knows if a God who is just and holy can forgive sins? Who knows if a God who has spoken his word and judged us will listen to us? Who knows if our destruction can be turned back? Who knows? Friends, if I might say that, our world doesn't know it, but that's the cry of our world. Who knows if there is a God who hears and a God who cares? Who knows if there's a way to be right with God? Who knows if there's a place to flee from his coming wrong? Who knows if there's a way I can meet God in friendship? Who knows if I can have a clean conscience when I do? Who knows? Now, most of our world has put aside God, but around the world there are still people who ask that question. It's the cry of our world in many ways. It's a desperate hope. Is there a God who can sort this out? Let me let you into a little secret. The king of Nineveh may say, who knows? 
But the book of Jonah tells us someone who did know. Jonah knew, didn't he? After all, he too had been a rebel against God. God's word came to him. He ran away. God reached out to him, acted in great mercy and kindness. God came to him again in Jonah chapter 3, 1, a second time, acted in great mercy and kindness, allowed Jonah to bear his word again. Now I want you to look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Remember, I want you to remember, think about it this way. Uh, here's the king. He's sitting in his pile of ashes. He's sitting there thinking, who knows, who knows? And who do, who do you think he's saying this to? Jonah. Who knows? Now look at what Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew. Can you hear the irony? King of Nineveh, who knows? It's the very prophet who's telling him. It's just the prophet hasn't told him the answer in one sense. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast and in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew. I knew you were merciful. I knew you abound in cassette and relent from disaster. I knew practically and I knew theoretically. They're a virtual quotation of Exodus 34, aren't they? Verses 6 and 7. Jonah has experienced God's rescue despite his disobedience. He's experienced God's steadfast love by being called again to bear God's word. He knows his theology and the king of Nineveh may very well ask who knows, but he has standing in front of him a man who does know, practically and theoretically. But Jonah's not the only one who knows, is he? In fact, if Jonah can say he knows, then we who are Christians can say we know with much greater authority. Like Jonah, we know it from theology, but if we are Christians, we know it from experience as well. For God has told us that he sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might not perish but have eternal life. And he has said in his word that because of God's great love, he, uh, he has put forward his son to die for us. He has said in his word that he has done this even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He has said that his one great act in Jesus Christ will forgive sin and turn away his anger at sin and sinfulness and sinners. And we know also from personal experience, don't we? For we know that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. That is what it is to be saved by grace. Friends, I want to say really strongly, as Christians we don't cry into the dark when we hear about our sinfulness. We don't say, oh, I wonder if there's someone there who can forgive now, for us, there's no who knows. Uh, when faced with God's holiness and judgment, we don't go sort of scuttling back to our homes and say, who knows, maybe God might. No, we know. So we go running to the cross and we say, God, I know that you will. Now, friends, there's a world out there that's asking the question, who knows? Some of them have not yet let the question slip from their mouths. But it is the question underneath. Some of them suppress it in unrighteousness like Romans 1. But deep in the heart of every human being, you may not believe this, but deep in the heart of every human being lies a wandering, lingering, plaintive question, who knows? And my friends, we know and we can tell them that God delights to have mercy, just like Jonah could, although he didn't want to. We know that if they trust in Jesus, then God will accept them as, their, as his child. Now, let's now turn to Jonah 4 in a little more detail. Oh, by the way, I should say, um, is it, it is a delightful thing, isn't it, when people do recognise it. Now, in Australia at the moment, uh, for the last uh, 10, 15 years, mainland Chinese people have been flooding into Australia. 
And about uh, 17, 18 years ago, my predecessor at the church that I was at decided that um, we should have a ministry to mainland Chinese people. So he got graduates of a new theological college that taught only in Mandarin. He took the first graduates from it, a husband and wife. He said, I want you to do the work of an evangelist anywhere you can find Chinese people in uh, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And they did. And my estimate is that they have baptised between 700 and 1,000 mainland Chinese in the 16, 17 years of the ministry there. Um, and uh, I, we'd have a baptism of them three times a year. It was... I would go there and I'd stand up the back of church watching these people who'd come from raw atheism to faith in Christ. And the tears would well up in my eyes. I thought, isn't this phenomenal? You see, friends, we know this is true. In fact, my own suspicion is that the shutting of China for 50 years will be the cause of the ongoing spread of Christianity in the world for the next 30 to 50. Because the rest of the world is shutting down, isn't it? And maybe mainland China will do that and mainland Chinese people will have that experience as well. But at the moment it's still a little open although it's getting harder and harder all the time. But we know, friends, and now those mainland Chinese people in Doncaster in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, they are now telling the world that as well. Now, let's return to Jonah 4. Now, just as a way of getting into this passage, I want you to come with me on an imaginary sneak look into heaven. Okay? It's imaginary, so it's just something I've formulated. Okay? I want you to imagine that somehow you've been able to see into heaven and meet some of the people that are there. I guess you, like me, would not be surprised to see certain people there. People like Abraham and Moses and some of the great known Christians throughout history. I wonder, though, how you would feel if you found yourself stumbling across the following people. Adolf Hitler. Joseph Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden. I wonder how you'd feel if you found out that each of these masters of genocide or of terrorism were in heaven because they repented of their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus on their deathbed. How would you feel? And how would you feel if you were the father or the mother of a child who died in one of the twin uh, the, the planes hijacked and crashed into the twin towers, how would you feel? Or the brother or sister of one of the Jewish people who'd been gassed in Hitler's Holocaust, how would you feel? I imagine you would then feel something of what Jonah feels in chapter four. I'm trying to get you into the brain of Jonah. He cannot handle this because Nineveh was as evil as any of those regimes I have talked about. As evil as any of them. So when Jonah sees God forgive Nineveh, as he does in Jonah 3, there is a very deep anger in him. And it is Jonah's anger that is the focus of Jonah 4. So let's see what happens. Let's look at Jonah's response. Chapter 4, verse 1. And to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Actually, you know what the original language says? It was exceedingly evil to Jonah, or exceedingly disgusting to him. It's very strong. In other words, Jonah looked, and he saw the evil of Nineveh, and he hated it, and he saw God have mercy and change his mind about destroying the city and he hated that as well. In fact, he was disgusted that God could be so merciful. I wonder if you remember the story of the king of Nineveh. Listens to Jonah's preaching, looks at Jonah, asks this question, who knows? Remember what I said? Then Jonah knew. And that's what we're told here. 
So, what these verses are saying is that this is all too much for Jonah. He can accept that God will be merciful to Israel and to him. But it is too much if he is merciful to this pagan and evil city of Nineveh. And his disgust at God is so overwhelming that he would rather die than see Nineveh saved. He would rather die than see Nineveh saved. Look at what he says to God in verse 3. He says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I would rather die than see what you have done. And then verse 4, God responds, he says, Is it right for you to be angry? The words literally read, do you do well to be angry? In other words, God is saying, what right do you have? And it's these words that fit the context for the next section, verses 5 to 11. And in these verses, God deals with Jonah's anger. Let's have a look very briefly at what happens. Verse 5 is a flashback to when Jonah was finished prophesying to the city. He apparently came into the city from the west and he travelled through it and then exited out on the east. I, I mean, I'm, you can imagine, I can imagine Jonah doing this. He finishes his job. He's not sure what's going to happen to the city. Perhaps he hopes that God will do a Sodom and Gomorrah to it okay, <laughs> and destroy the city. So he, he finds a good vantage point where he can get a good view. And he builds himself this temporary little shelter to wait out, to see what's going to happen in the 40 days, fully anticipating what is going to happen. Now, in those days uh, in Mesopotamia, timber was scarce and expensive and generally imported. So Jonah's shelter, therefore, probably would have been built out of stones and or clay. Perhaps he put up this rough roof over it, um, branches from some local brush. Uh, it was probably a very crude dwelling. Right? You know, that is not much shelter, really, uh, from the hot Middle Eastern sun. And then just as God acted uh, in mercy towards his... Uh, sorry. And then uh, just as God had acted in mercy toward the prophet in verse 1, in chapter 1, just as he appointed a great fish, so God now appoints a tree to grow. I see his Jonah sitting under his little sort of hut, whatever it is, sitting in the hot Palestinian sun or the hot uh, Middle Eastern sun, and uh, this great this little plant shoots up, and it greatly eases his discomfort. Uh, it's really nice, bit of shelter, and and where Jonah was exceedingly angry with God for being merciful with Nineveh, he is now exceedingly glad that God is merciful with him. Now. But Jonah's shade and relief are short-lived because the very next day God sends some more natural forces, this time in the shape of a worm. Right? The worm comes along and apparently eats up all the stem of the, and the root of the plant and causes it to die. And it's all very quick. It doesn't take days. It's very quick. And the shade dies. And Jonah's head begins to burn again under the hot sun. Um... But that's not the end of Jonah's bad day because verse 8 tells us that when the sun had risen, God did some more appointing of nature. This time he appointed a scorching east wind. And it's possible that that wind was the sort of wind that is now called a Sirocco. The Sirocco is a constant flow. It's a well-known phenomenon in the Middle East and uh, various parts of uh, uh, Middle Asia. The Sirocco is a constant flow of hot air that is full of positive ions and it affects the levels of serotonin and other neurobrain transmitters. Okay, and what happens is, it's a well-known phenomenon. The Sirocco is known to cause exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality and even occasional bizarre behaviour. The wind and the heat, if that's what it was, the wind and the heat must have caused great difficulty for Jonah. He may have experienced heat exhaustion, and all the anguish and depression that that combination of elements would cause. Anyway, everything was going wrong for him. <laughs> it wasn't a good day. It appears as though God is against him. And so God, Jonah calls out to God to end his life. Verse 9. 
of this eight. And God responds in verse 9. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? There's a difference in focus here with God, isn't there? Did you notice? God has narrowed down the scope of the question of God's anger. In verse 4, God's anger is focused on God's actions towards Nineveh. Here it is God's action toward a plant. And Jonah responds to God's question in verse 9, and I want to paraphrase, he says this. It is right that I am angry, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. In effect, Jonah is saying that the plant was important to him, significant to him, delighted him, and now he's suffering because of its demise. He's angry enough at its demise to want to die rather than live without it. The point that Jonah is making is that the plant is worthy of life because it's important to him. God now has Jonah exactly where he wants him. And so he turns to Jonah and analyses his anger. And I want to try and paraphrase it. You can look at there, see if I've got it right. Here's my paraphrase. Okay, Jonah, so let's take a look at your anger. You're angry about this plant, aren't you? But is your concern for the plant genuine or just plain selfish? After all, you never had the devotion of a gardener for a plant. It just came. If you feel what you feel about the plant, even though you're not the gardener, then imagine what the gardener might feel. How do you think the gardener might feel who has tended the plant, watched it grow, and then saw it, seen it wither and die? And if you feel such intense emotions for a plant that you had nothing to do with in terms of its growth, then imagine how I feel for Nineveh. Now you check out the text, see if you think this is what it's saying. He's saying, I made the people of Nineveh, I love them as my creation. And they have cost me huge effort. They mean the world to me. And your pain over a plant is nothing beside my pain when I contemplate their destruction. Jonas, you yourself have said in the boat, I'm the creator of the world. I'm the God who notices when a sparrow falls to the ground. I'm a God who's even concerned about sparrows and cattle in the city of Nineveh. Notice the cattle. He's concerned about the cattle as well. I care for everything. I've created and I particularly care for the people I've created and these people of Nineveh they haven't had all the advantages you Jews have had for centuries I've been your God and you've been my people you've known my word you've experienced my kesed and yet you've been sinning against me from the very first day I called you now we know that because we looked at that in Exodus 34 didn't we from the day they ended covenant while, while God was giving the ten words on the top of the mountain, they were breaking the first two of the ten words down the bottom. Day one. I've been changing my mind about you ever since that day and I've been relenting from disaster. And Jonah, more, more than that, I've been lenient with you, haven't I? I've called you twice now. And a recalcitrant prophet deserves death. But I didn't kill you. Instead, I rescued you from the great fish. And then I used you again as a prophet rather than throwing you aside. I've been merciful to Israel and I've been merciful to you, Jonah. And you have the gall, you have, you have the gall to be angry at me for being generous with this city and its people who sin without having the advantages you Jews have had. Jonah, your anger is totally, totally, totally unjustified at my mercy. Now friends, in the book of Ruth, we saw people, the people of God, welcoming outsiders by showing generosity and kindness. In this book we see a man from a nation who's been shown mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy. We see a man himself who's been shown mercy after mercy. He's been rescued from the fish. He's been called a second time by the, to be a prophet. God's been extremely generous with him and he knows it. And he can't have God do the same thing with anyone else. Now you may think that Jonah's unusual. 
have a let me show you a story in the New Testament. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. So Matthew 18. And uh, please follow with me. We'll, we'll just, I'll skim through the story. So it's uh, Matthew chapter 18, 21. Jesus tells a story. Uh, it goes like this. And Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, uh, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times, which basically is a way for a Jew to say endless times. Okay? Therefore, he says, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's an enormous amount of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and with his wife and children and all that he had to be um, uh, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. The difference between those is a massive amount of money in the millions, as it were, the equivalent, and a tiny amount of money, you know, in its tens or whatever. It's, it's, the difference is enormous. Just absolutely enormous. And uh, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have mercy with me and I will pay you. He refused and went had him put him, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what he had taken, what had taken place, they, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. And friends, these are some of the most terrifying words of the Lord Jesus. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, that is every one of you believers, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. They are terrifying words. Friends, this is a serious warning to not be like Jonah. Jonah who's ready to accept God's forgiveness and mercy and is not willing to exercise it himself. What more if the mercy has cost the life of God's own son? We must reflect our experience in the way we treat others. And if we don't, friends, what this verse says is that God will act toward us as we have acted toward others. It's a very sober warning. So ask yourselves, I will ask myself, the question that God asks Jonah, what right do we have? To be angry with God being merciful? To respond to others unlike the way God has responded to us? To be unforgiving, to be critical of God being merciful. You see, God has been extremely generous to us. He loves mercy, loves grace, loves forgiveness, loves welcoming the alien and the stranger. He rejoices in one sinner who repents and he'll leave 99 sheep to go in search of the one who's strayed. He's the Lord, the Lord, the God of steadfast love. So friends, if you've forgotten this today, then I urge you to rethink Return to the cross and remember how God forgives you and refresh your mind and your heart with the truths there and then bask in God's mercy and do not be like Jonah. Forgive. Even as you have been forgiven. Have a heart like God's which is full of mercy, full of grace, full of patience, full of kindness. God loves grace. He loves forgiveness. He loves welcoming the alien and the stranger. And he rejoices in one sinner who repents. 
and he'll leave 99 sheep to search in the, for the one gone astray. He's the Lord, the Lord, the God of steadfast love. So if you've forgotten those things, then please, please, please sort it out. Go to God and he will forgive. And then go to your fellow people and forgive as you have been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we, we this morning want to bask in your mercy and grace. Please create in us hearts full of mercy, full of grace, full of patience, full of kindness. Hearts full of what we have received from you. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus, who was willing to die for us that we might be forgiven. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.